three, two. Welcome into the Angler's Influence in Southeastern Fly, Wisdom of the Guides, Round One. So Wisdom of the Guides uh, was stolen actually from a book called Wisdom of the Guides, and it was used by John Jordan, and John is a, a guy that ran the Hendersonville Fly Fishers for many years. And uh, I did steal it from John, but I did ask for his permission, and he did give it to me. A little bit about how that, that all went down with John was he would get a couple of guides together, and his meetings were like on a Thursday night once a month. When he would get the guides together, he would just get his group in a room, and he would just say, all right, start throwing your questions at the guides. And they would just pepper you with questions, which was, was interesting because you never, you never really had an idea of where the questions were going to come from. You just kind of had to go off the cuff. This is a little different. So these questions have been asked by one or more of my clients, somebody on Facebook pinging me or Instagram followers that ping me behind the scenes and messages, members of fly fishing clubs that I've either presented to or I'm a member of, and sometimes even people in fly shops around the country. These questions aren't necessarily unique to any one region. This is Southeastern Fly, and we do like to talk about the Southeast, so we're going to kind of go with that on this episode. I think everybody can learn something, uh, and it'll be really interesting if you'll put your put your learning hats on and, and keep an open mind. I think there are some folks out there that probably think, eh, you know what, I know pretty much about everything, and, and they'll critique the they'll critique our answers today. And that's fine. But if you open your mind up, I guarantee you'll learn something because we've got two great guides here uh, to talk to today. So our panel today in round one of Wisdom of the Guides, I want to welcome back the very first person that ever decided that, yeah, I'll sit down with you, David. I'll, I'll have pity on you. And, and I'll let you ask me all these questions. And the audio wasn't that great, but man, the conversation was so good. Susan Thrasher, owner of, of Southern Brookies. Susan, thanks for coming. You're very welcome. We had a good time that night, didn't we? A big bowl of chili we had, is what yes. I remember. Yes, <laughs> we did. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say thanks for coming out because we actually came to your place here on the Caney. So thank you for hosting. You're uh, very welcome. So you're, you're a fly fishing guide for Southern Brookies. You're also the owner. Yeah. So you clean boats. Mm-hmm. You tie flies, you tie leaders, you clean rods, you clean waders, you do all that stuff that we I all do. I do it all. Yeah. yeah. I've had people say, so how many guys do you have? Yeah, well, you're looking at that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also got a new book coming out, don't you? It's coming out on June 9th. It was supposed to be May 12th, but with everything happening in the world, it got pushed out a little bit, which is okay, because now um, I think folks will actually be able to walk in someplace and buy it. But it is available on Amazon, and it'll be a um, just a paperback book, but but also a Kindle edition too. So June 9th is the date. Cool. Well, I've got an electronic copy of it, uh, which I've been kind of thumbing through. I haven't stopped and read it yet. I need to sit down and do that, but it's been crazy about the past 30 days. I've probably had a couple of days off at the most. I took today off, didn't really do much of anything. I felt pretty good about that. So your, your book will be available on June 9th, 2020. Yep. So anytime yeah. after that, people yeah. could pick that up. Just a couple of weeks. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thanks for having us out and thanks for agreeing to, to come out and, and, uh, and participate in, in Wisdom of the Guys Round you 1. Bet. On the other side of the microphone over here, we've got another microphone set up over here on the other side of the room and we've got David Knapp. David Knapp is the owner of Trout Zone Anglers. David, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you were on, you were a couple episodes back, you and I, mm-hmm. I think I came to, I came across Yeah, that we night. did that up in Crossville. Yeah, in the snow. It was, uh, it was cold. It was cold and snowy, and there was snow on the roads, and I just remember the snow on the roads making the roads narrower and narrower yep. as I drove up there. And I thought, man, I may never get home, which wouldn't have been a terrible thing for 
nice to have a day or two off there too. <laughs> My life revolves around. You're all day. about days off. Aren't I am you? about days off, aren't I? <laughs> you guide and you split your time between the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Mm -hmm. You're one of the one of the go-to guides up there. You also guide on the Cumberland Plateau, and that's kind of your own little niche and your own little. I call it a secret. Yeah, Explore that's one that I I take people there, but I don't broadcast it real widely. So I need to be quiet. Is that what you're nah, not too quiet. But. <laughs> You also guide here on the Caney Fork. Yep. And you also guide on the Clinch. Yes. You have some drive time in there just like I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, and just like Susan does if she's down at the Elk, a uh, mm -hmm. little bit of drive time there. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for coming out. I think this is going to be really cool. This is the first one, so we're kind of stumbling away, or I'm kind of stumbling through some of this. So, all right. So our first question, I'm not going to say who these are from. I know who they're from. But also know that they're a combination of the same questions. So I really kind of had to reword the questions mm -hmm. to fit to fit what we're what we're talking about and what the what the actual question behind the question sometimes is. So there's always a question, but a lot of times there's a question behind the question. And oh, that's yeah. really kind of what we want to get to today. Mm -hmm. The first question is about fly fishing travel, uh, which I like. I love to travel and I love to fly fish. I don't have to, you know, if it's a family vacation or something like that. I don't have to fish, but generally by about Wednesday they're pretty sick of me and they want me to go fish. So I try to. To try to schedule something about halfway through a week week long trip or something like that with the family uh and those those trips are really nice but i really like the trips where a group of anglers close-knit group of friends get together and susan i think you can help us on this one because of of the fly girls music city fly girls that's something that you're you're a big part of yep. uh and y'all do a whole lot of trips mm -hmm. we do several um each year and we usually try to take one one or two long trips You've probably got some pointers in there. and some, So the question behind this question is, is a little bit different, and it comes in actually in the second part of the question. So when traveling to other locations to fish, tell us something that would make a fly fishing trip more successful that most people wouldn't think about, but it would be something that everybody should know. I think since there's three guides sitting in here, it's kind of like being in church, you know, where even if you're not paying attention in church, the answer is Jesus, right? <laughs> right. So even if you're not paying attention as a guide, if you go on a trip— guide is the answer and that's not necessarily always true it's great to have a guide and we try to support each other as best we can and if you're going to new water that's all well and well and good and that's that's the canned answer i want yeah. to get away from that just a minute so these two-day trips it's hard to do this but a three four five six day fishing trip it's really easy to do this one if you have the time and want to make that trip successful take a half a day and don't fish that sounds really weird on a fishing podcast right and it kind of is until you do it and I'll give you a for instance. I think this sums up this question pretty well about taking a half a day. So we went to the White River several years ago. We fished, I think, three days. Uh, the second day, we just really said, you know what? I, I, we're going to fish a section that we can get through in about a half day. And then we're just going to come back to the house and we're going to sit up on this bank here. Just happened to be, you could sit on the porch and look across the White River, right, right where the buffalo came in. And you could see all the people fishing and all that. You could sit, we sat and watched eagles for probably two hours. We played wall hooky. I don't know if you've ever played that but everybody needs a wall hooky game uh we bought ours at margaritaville in in uh, orlando several years ago uh we played wall hooky uh we had some adult beverages of course and we we ended up getting eating leftover pizza because nobody really wanted to drive because the pizza place was so far away we had some more leftover so we did that that's probably the best best day ever because we caught fish in the morning in the afternoon we just kind of hung out watched the thunderstorm roll through watch people float up and down the river, watch people get under trees because the rain was so hard, you know, that sort of thing. And then we listen to music. So just a few things there that really have made, and they're not all, so if you notice, I haven't talked about flies, I haven't talked about rods, I haven't mm -hmm. talked about any of that, because I think that brought the whole experience together was, was doing that. It was a great, it was a fantastic trip. But 
I think that half day set right in the middle where we just really didn't do anything but just visit and catch up was just really good for us. Let you rest a little bit too. Yeah. So you can push yourself the next day. Exactly. That's exactly what we did. We had like a nine hour marathon float the next day and I think it's caught. easy to get trip fatigue where you just, you, you know, you're just done and ready to go home and you can ruin a trip if that sets in too early, you know. That's a good point. You sure can. I don't know. That's that's just my thoughts on that. that that's kind of my spin, but that's kind of the question behind the question that, that one person asked. Well, you know, when we went to um, Canada last year with the Music City Fly Girls, that was for five days and we purposely, you know, had, um, had two days that we could do a, a float trip and a day of a wade trip and we decided to put one whole day in there for just sightseeing because you go all the way out to Calgary and you've got Banff and Lake Louise. On our final day, instead of fishing, we um, we went over to Lake Louise and we had high tea and then walked around the lake and, you know, went into Banff. And I mean, that was the highlight of a lot of people's <laughs> time that were there, you know, that we loved the fishing. But just taking that extra time, because you don't want to come back home and somebody said, well, what all do you see? Well, some boulders and some rocks and uh, pebbles and so, you know, a stream, <laughs> a few fish. My dry fly for seven hours straight. So you want to be able to at least see and explore uh, the other things that are out there. I was really talking to somebody about that the other day, that whenever I go out like Colorado, first time I went with David, I don't know that I really saw anything except for the drive from the Taylor where yeah, we, back, we came back from back to back to the other side of the mountains. Yeah, that was really the only time that I really saw anything, and it was tough to see anything because he he drives so dang fast. <laughs> After that trip, I made a point that all right, the next time I go out there, even if I'm floating or whatever, I'm stopping. I'm not I'm not looking at that fly all day long. Well, I think some other things that people may, may not think about, but they definitely need to know because you can get yourself in hot water. Is just what the fishing regulations are in the different mm. spots, and making sure that if you've got felt boots, that you make sure you know you know is felt going to be something that's even legal in the area mm-hmm. or do you need rubber sole boots or in the area where you're fishing do you have to have barbless hooks because i can tell you in california you can get a big 500 hundred dollar ticket that one of our fly girls unfortunately found out the hard way because she accidentally was fishing a barbless hook or a barbed hook instead of barbless i heard a story about a guy that's a game warden i believe is on the san juan and he'll carry like a silk handkerchief and run hooks through him and see if it anything comes out of the handkerchief and if it does he's like that's a barb you know and ticket people over yep. it that's well that's exactly sketchy. what happened to her with just a little string yep. and he found you know and saw that so yep. and boy that can ruin a trip in oh, fact yeah. i don't know that she didn't go back with us on the next trip because of that. yeah, that's too <laughs> she bad. really didn't like it but you know it leaves a bad taste in your mouth and so you if you check the regulations ahead of time yeah, that's, I think, one thing that you've got to do. And taking the time just to study up on some areas mm-hmm. because I always like to look to see if there's some neat restaurants to go to and visit, maybe a local brewery, you mm-hmm. know. I think that's kind of fun, you know, just to visit some places like that. So, yeah, to me, it's just checking out those regulations. Doing, doing your homework, which I just did some homework right there because I think, I think I'm headed to California in July for a week or so. And I didn't know that. I haven't done any homework because, I mean, knowing me, I wait till the plane ride out there and then say, oh, crap, I don't have any, I didn't bring any barbless stuff with me. You know, so thanks for that. Mm-hmm. See, that's good information right there. In case you're wondering, we didn't, we haven't talked about these answers with each other at all. So if you hear us say the same thing, like if, if one of us answers and the other one says the same thing, don't be surprised because I, that was one of the things that we said. Don't talk to each other. Just go with what you got. Yeah. Because if, if, we, if we're repeating something, then it may be 
you know, just a little bit more important than all the other stuff. But right. so good information right there. So do your homework. But I think the main thing is to to know that if it's a if it's kind of an exotic trip. So if, if I was going to Russia, I'd want to make sure that everything. Hint, that's where I want to go. Uh, <laughs> if I want to go out there and and uh, and fish or Mongolia, if I happen to mm-hmm. happen to go there. Yeah, that'd be an epic trip, right? Oh, and don't man. wait till the last minute to get your passport. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. So, so those sorts of things, I would try to try to read up on those a little bit. I think those are important things to look at. The last thing you want to have to do is go out and buy a pair of boots when you get there. The last thing you want to have to do is go out and restock your fly box, especially if you've tied a bunch of flies that you've looked online and said these are the patterns that work, and you think you've got your best bullets in your quiver there. And you're going to fire them at those fish for a week, on, all, only to find out that oh, I tied them all on on barbed hooks and a spare rod, you know. Because if if oh, you're yeah. supplying your own gear and it's a a trip of a lifetime, and you're going out and you only have one rod and you break the tip right away, you know that'd be pretty disappointing. And I I appreciate those rods that they give you two tips, you know. <laughs> yeah, I do. But I'm also going to carry an extra just because. I don't want to get out there and, and do that and be, well, now I've got to, now I've got to have a rod flown in, you know, cause I would have to next day air it in. There's be no way around it. You know, let's had a lot of day. people tell me they've bought rods in places like West Yellowstone. Cause they get there with one rod, they break it on their first day of the trip. And it's like, you got to do something to keep fishing, you know? Yeah. And you may or may not be wanting to spend that kind of money when you just bought all your plane tickets and everything. Right. I think the place that we're going in California, I don't think there's a fly shop anywhere close enough for me to get in the car and drive to in yeah. a reasonable time. So I would have to order it in and have it flown in. I would have to, I know me, I would next day air it in. Whether I had to fish the next day or not, I'd want to make sure, all right, it's got to be. Here. Right. You know, and I can track that package so yeah. I'd feel better about well, it. Well, I tell you, one thing that we do, uh, the fly girls, a lot of times, even though we have our own equipment and there's favorite rods that we like, Sometimes just to make it a little bit easier, we'll talk with the guides and, you know, see what kind of equipment they're using, especially if we're doing all guided trips, not just on our own. And we just won't take our gear (laughs) because, boy, it makes it so much nicer to not, you know, lug around, especially if the weather's nice and you can just get away with shorts and and sandals and you don't even have to worry about taking your waders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, always pack a rain jacket because you just never know. But a lot of times we just use the gear of, um, you know, that the guides have. I think that's so. wise. I do. And, and they you, usually have some pretty nice gear a mm-hmm. lot of the times. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask either. Yeah. You know, yeah. What, we're, we're not bringing our equipment. You know, what kind of equipment do you have? And they may have something you've been wanting to try out anyway. That happens a lot. Have you ever had any guides be kind of funny, like not wanting you to use their equipment and suggesting that you bring your own pretty strongly, or are they pretty much all willing to do that? I've never had anybody say, no, I don't supply anything. Yeah. Never have. Yeah. I've never said that. I've never said no. Right. I've always mm-hmm. said, yeah, I'll bring two or three different types of rods, mm-hmm. all of yep. about the same weight, so you can try one. Heck, there might be something that you want to go back home and buy. And if it's an experienced angler, I'll even ask, you know, have you ever tried a fiberglass or a bamboo? Would yeah. you like to try it? Would you? Are there any brands that you might like to check out? And if there's some that I have found that I really like, I'll even suggest to the client, I'm going to bring this because you really need to yeah. cast it yes. and see what you think. Yeah, I did that with some fiberglass stuff for a long time, and it's interesting. A lot of people love that stuff, but mm-hmm. every once in a while, you get somebody to say, "Yeah, I don't." Like yeah, I don't that. like it. <laughs> and it's just a, it's an action thing. It's a casting mm-hmm. thing. Usually. Yeah. So let's move on there. I think we I think we did a pretty good job on that one, y'all. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. ready to travel. Oh, you <laughs> yeah. too. I let's go book I some trips. <laughs> yeah, for real. 
if we're going to travel, we're probably going to fish some dry droppers somewhere along the way if it's going to be nice in summer. So I think on this one, David and I will probably answer this one. But Susan, please chime in anytime that you think of something good to uh, to add. But also, if you want to try to stump David, that would be this would be a good time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so hopper droppers can be effective. We're going to so it's dry droppers was a question, but I got more questions on hopper droppers, and I think. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I think, after talking with folks and, and really messaging back and forth, I think a lot of people are more comfortable with hopper droppers, but I think we can go both ways on this. I'm going to say hopper droppers can be an effective way to cover water, both on top and subsurface. So you're hitting them two different ways there just to see what's going to happen. Can you provide a tip that, to help anglers get a good presentation for both flies so both can be effective? And what that means is, if one's floating really good, like that hopper's floating really good, you think it's floating really good, that bottom fly, that dropper's not always doing what you mm -hmm. think it should. I'll start with this one, uh, and I'll start with fishing from a boat because everybody knows it, that I love fishing from a boat. Uh, and I'll start with the delivery. Try to think through your delivery before you cast. Try to keep the length of that hopper so we all know hoppers are, are like a, if you look straight down on them, they're like a little bitty rectangle. Yep. The length is a little longer than the width. If you can keep that length going lengthways with the river, so length with the flow of the river, I try to keep its head up, upstream, mm -hmm. floating backwards. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm floating in the boat, that way I know that, that dropper's getting a pretty good, pretty good drift down there as I float along with the water. And that helps that helps anglers too, you know, because they start thinking through that drift and they start looking at water and saying, all right, what is that water doing? You know, what's what's the what's the flow look like? Is it a riffle? Is there, is there, are there a couple current seams coming together here? Mm -hmm. How do I get it to float lengthways in there? It actually, I think in my mind, I think it, it helps people to focus when you give them that, uh, that direction or that task, if you will. It gives them a little bit of direction there and kind of engages them a little bit, but not sideways. So floating sideways is okay. And, and I, we've, uh, there's some guy out there going, well, you know what? I float mine sideways every day. And today I caught a 24 inch fish. You don't know what you're talking about. I know you're out there. Okay. Don't send me an email. I know I say this every time, but don't send me an email. Just open your mind up a little bit. Everything will work pretty much, but I, I'm just going by what we have more success on day in, day out. So not sideways, try to keep it floating, you know, lengthways also try to get your cast down to where you can drop that bottom fly in the river first and we've all seen it where you bring the rod tip down too fast and then that 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 hopper or that dry will hit the hit the water and then that that dropper will will hit the water afterwards so try to drop that dropper that dropper in there just a little bit earlier uh and a lot of times that dry fly that hopper will follow that that bottom fly right into the water if you're waiting, it's a little bit different because I know that waiting, you try to get a little bit of a different setup than in the boat. Uh, you don't have as long a drift. You can't get those long soaks like you can in a boat a lot of times. But still, try to drop it upstream lengthways. Now you're, now the head's probably going to be pointed down for a certain amount of time, but also you can lengthen up that, that leader or that tippet to that bottom fly because that fly normally isn't going to fall quite as quick if, you, if you're casting upstream and you can keep it down i mean it falls still at a pretty good rate but it's just a little bit slower if you watch it mm -hmm. than casting it downstream yeah. and getting a good entry into the water so yeah. i try to lengthen up that that uh the tippet just a little more i'm not talking 20 feet here i'm just talking a little bit more until i know it's ticking the bottom and you know there's a little bit of adjustment there mm -hmm. that usually is going to go on and you just try to keep getting those good drifts going 
So add just a little more depth to that bottom fly. I think that's a, that's probably a tip that I could give. So that's two ways to fish it: one out of the boat, floating with with the current. Again, getting that nice long soak. Waiting, you're kind of confined a little bit to your drift, uh, with a little bit of a switch up in there once the fly gets to you. So if you cast upstream, the head's headed downstream on the hopper. When it gets past you, you probably want to do a little mend there. Now the head will be pointed upstream. But you're also raising that bottom fly when you do that that mend to yeah. you know to to make that switch right at, right usually about where you're parallel. So just that's just a couple of things that I thought about you know whenever I was whenever I was going through this with uh, with a couple of folks as I responded back and forth to them. It's funny I have a, a love hate relationship with hopper droppers, and I think that all kind of goes back to when I was I was fishing them in pretty heavy cover, and I guess. I guess a tip that I would have is when you're fishing hopper dropper, don't get as deep into cover as you might would if you're fishing just a hopper or if you're fishing just a nymph. Cause I, I can still picture it just like it was yesterday. It was probably six years ago, seven years ago, but this big brown trout blowing up on my hopper and that dropper catching oh. a piece of wood and busting them both off at the same time, you know? And if I'd had just the hopper on there, I would have had a 20 some inch brown on a hopper. You know, there's times that you got to get those nymphs into the into the wood. I mean, there's, that's where the big fish are. And for me, if I'm fishing real heavy into cover, it's one or the other. Is you know, I'm either fishing the nymph with an indicator, or I'm fishing the hopper. But when I'm fishing hopper dropper, I think the big reason I like to do it. We've all been there floating down the river, have a real you know bright fluorescent yellow indicator floating along with a midge under it or a, a nymph under it or something and some big fish just comes up and destroys the indicator and if you'd had a hook in that indicator you would have had a really good fish you know i fish them more in open water as a glorified strike indicator and when i'm doing that i kind of i kind of like the whole hopper copper dropper i like to trail something really small behind my larger nymph and catch a lot of fish on that smaller fly but i do have my hook in my indicator when something blows up on it you know i guess kind of going a different direction than your standard pounding the banks but i like fishing them right out in the middle and it's it's amazed me over the years how many big fish i've had blow up on hoppers in the middle of a river (laughs) On a day with no winds, there shouldn't be any hoppers flying around, falling in the water out there, but they, they hit them, you know. Was it me and you that fished a hopper like in February one year? I think it was We probably did. A pink yeah. hopper? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we caught it. I don't think we caught a thing yeah. on it, but I mean, it's just like take it out of the box and try it just for a little while. Just you know, to see. I, I fish a ton of dry droppers in the park, and not so much hopper droppers as just a you know, parachute atoms and a little pheasant tail or whatever. And in that faster water, I actually go kind of the opposite direction from what you described, where you want the fly to enter the water and everything. And it it sinks slower when you land that nymph upstream of the dry fly. But if the nymph is drifting downstream of the dry fly and you're fishing fast water, a fish can eat that nymph. The dry fly can drift three feet, four feet. True. And be hinging on that point where the fish grabbed that fly the whole time and never really indicate that something's grabbed it until that dry fly is raced downstream on that fast surface current and then come tight on the fish, you know, three or four feet later. Whereas if that nymph is upstream, you're constantly tight to that nymph from the dry fly. And a second a fish hits it, you know that it happened. And in the park, the reason I think that it's so important there to fish it that way is those fish, I tell everybody, they're the fastest fish you're going to fish for anywhere. And if you're not on them 
right now, you're not going to catch them. You know, I think it's more important in a park scenario when that you're fishing that fast water to know that you're getting that fast hit instead of getting as clean of a drift and as deep of a sink with that nymph, which is, I mean, like, I agree with you. And, you know, when you're on the Caney Fork or something, you want those flies in the water. You want them getting straight to the bottom as quickly as you can. Um, but in the park, like, I just think it's a little bit of a different scenario. I think the water up there is so different, but the fish are probably the more of the difference. Like, they're yeah. they're opportunistic. They're trying – they're in survival mode yeah. 24-7. Yeah. So they're – I'm going to go check this out. If, it, if it's good, I'm going to eat it. If it's yeah. not – I'll be back to the bottom before you even set the hook. Yeah. That's kind of the way I look at those fish up there. I was just thinking about one of the best days I ever had fishing a hopper dropper was on the middle Provo river out mm. in Utah. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first times I'd done it early in my career. And a fellow was, um, had actually introduced me to that method. And I spent the day just walking upstream, looking at different boulders and smaller rocks and a little pocket water. Mm-hmm. And I had on a hopper and about six to eight inches below was a little WD-40, about yeah. a size 18. And throwing it up above um, the boulder. And then, because there's always a fish, typically, you know, fishing it, sitting right in that little pocket cushiony area. Mm-hmm. And they'd either take the um, the hopper as soon as it hit up there, or the little WD-40 would swing right around into that real soft little swirl area in yeah. front of the boulder. It was just almost every cast, they'd either take the hopper or they'd take the WD-40. And so for me, walking up on the middle Provo, because I'd fish a lot of riffles as well, mm-hmm. just fishing six to eight inches below, where you would think, you know, if you're just going to float it along with a drift boat, yeah, it's going to be a little bit de- um, deeper. But fishing that kind of pocket water just from one mm-hmm. side to the next, little short, you know, dropper, that seemed to be the ticket. Yeah. You know, when you drop that thing up there, on the, I call it the pillow because it is so soft up above there. What it takes it, you just feel, I feel so smart. Yeah. I don't know why. Just, <laughs> oh, man, I'm smart for doing that, you know. Even That's though a fish has IQ of six, you know. That's an interesting thing to me, how those – boulders you know out west i feel like every boulder has a fish on that upstream pillow Mm -hmm. and you go fish the smokies and it's really rare they're almost always downstream it's just a different geology a different Mm -hmm. water type you know where they sit in those streams but there's so many of those rocks out west there's big old fish above it you know that's so yeah out west it is more prevalent i think no that's a good point about that short dropper too susan because i know here on the caney a lot of times if i'm fishing dry dropper i fish a lot of small smaller dry flies with a midge or something on the caney and uh and on the clinch you know the tail waters a lot of times if i'm not careful i discover i'm getting below the fish you start seeing fish that look like they're rising they're actually taking those pupa four inches under the surface, three inches under the surface, and you've got an 18-inch dropper to your midge, that midge is down below where the fish are looking. Yeah. You put it four they inches, five it. inches, six <laughs> inches, all of a sudden you're catching fish again. You get, if you got a wind knot underneath that underneath that dry, and it's four inches down, a lot of times... All of a sudden you start deep. catching fish. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> but, so I'm, I'm the world's worst fishing a hopper dropper, and then I get two, two hits on the hopper. I'm like, cut that stuff off. Let's just go... <laughs> let's go yep. hunt for some trophies here because yep. i love i love hopper fishing i think it's probably one of one of the best things that i i, I one of the most enjoyable things yeah i think i've seen you have more fun on the river with hoppers than anything and i know you like streamers a lot too mm-hmm. but i think i've seen you have more fun with a hopper than about yeah. anything yeah i remember me and you and brent yeah fishing i fished all the way down here just above susan's place the whole time y'all swapped out rowing well, you busted a big old fish down there too. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, 
I remember that was the fish going, you came for. <laughs> you both said it at some point or another. Aren't you going to get on a nymph? And I was like, nope, staying with it. Caught like one fish that whole day. It's a big old fish, though. So it was nice. I mean, it wasn't huge, but it was it was big to me, and it was like the perfect take. Too. Yeah. So I, I can I can fish hoppers. I'm bad about that one. So it, you were talking about the Provo. You're talking about the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and I think that that's a perfect segue into uh, high sticking which is where our next question comes from so if you're going to fish a section of river or stream and, and you were going to high stick or euro nymph or redneck check whatever we call that i mean there's a hundred different names for it it seems like tenkara comes into into play there a little bit and that stream had the following characteristics so this guy was really detailed in this question and so i kind of i kind of went right right with what what they, sure. what they said with the following characteristics where would you start uh susan let me go through these first so if if it has the following characteristics a pool with multiple slow currents is one so we're talking about a whole river here basically Mm -hmm. i don't know how long this river is but it's a good one it looks like just from reading it on paper pool with multiple slow currents uh, would be one one section a ledge with water moving lengthways a little ledge of rocks riffles leading into the pool or the downstream section of the bottom of the pool would you start there or would you just hit them, hit them all? And if you're going to hit them all, what would your approach be? And let's see what Susan's answer is, and then I'm going to switch over to David real quick. If I have the day off and I'm going to just fish myself, I'm going to gear on them. That's I, that's my favorite thing to do. Yep. I love it. <laughs> I think you're the perfect one to answer this question. Yeah, so I absolutely love it. Um, so I think the first thing I would look for and remember is, it, like if I'm along the ledge or I'm in the pool, I'm not just going to – try and cast as far out as I can go. I'm going to start in short, and then I'm just going to work my way out. Uh, the other thing I'm going to, to focus on, because you were talking about multiple currents coming into the pool and about that ledge, I'm just going to look for every single seam line that I can find. I'm going to cast my flies upstream of that seam line and just let them fall into that and just run along each one of the seams of those currents. And then a riffle that comes into a big pool I'm going to make sure to cast my heavy flies upstream into the riffle, but lift my rod tip so it doesn't get caught, you know, on those shallow rocks. But if I'm up high enough, then those flies have already started to get down, and then once they hit the the head of that pool, then they're just going to start dropping like a rock. That's when I lower the rod tip to let those go down. And so making sure that you cast upstream into that riffle, Lift up your flies so they don't get hung, and then drop it right at the at the head of the pool. And then they get down, and they'll run right through the pool. That's the way I would fish it. So you're going to hit pretty much every piece of that that you can and work every piece that you can as, as hard as you can. Yep, but my favorite probably of all of those you said was a ledge. Yeah. You know, in a current running um, along the ledge. Mm-hmm. And I would look for that long run and stand right in the middle of it and then cast upstream. Then I have the, the top of that run, and then it comes down to the, the bottom of the run, and then the, the tail out. But I stand right in the middle, not at the head or at the bottom, but kind of right in the middle of that. You work the whole thing from the, the middle. The whole thing. One thing that I learned about ledges, and I learned it right down the river here from where we're sitting, is that if you look at a ledge and you look at the dry part that hasn't that's not in the water, so right where it touches the water, you know, right from the water level up, that ledge will look one way. Right, they'll have different types of rocks, different pockets, and that sort of thing. You can pretty much bet that it's going to look kind of the same below the water too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's going to be pockets. It's going to have mm-hmm. rocks that run lengthways or up and down, or however it runs, depending on which river you fish. And you kind of start thinking, all right, well, if there's pockets up top of the rocks, right? So rocks are sticking out everywhere. 
if I was a fish and I was above the water, I'd be stuck in one of those pockets. Well, yeah. if I go below the water, chances are somewhere in there there's going to be another pocket that's going to kind mm-hmm. of stick out the same. Also look for like if, I don't know why I'm answering this question, y'all, but I am. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> David, you're next. I promise. I promise. I said I'm, we'd be I'm quick interested on to hear what one. you're saying here. So another thing I think to think about is, is if, if it – if there's a broken rock off that ledge, yeah. I mean, you could see it above the water. Yeah. It's, it's usually, unless it's been broke off for 10 years, uh, even if the water's deep, you can you can kind of start looking at it and start projecting, all right, that looks like a fresh break or that looks like a break that maybe happened two or three years ago. If you've got a good memory, you know it happened two or three years ago if you yep. fished that quite a bit. You'll know that I want to kind of focus there. It's going to be a little bit different. There's going to be a little different break, and the chances of fish sitting in there are going to be pretty darn good usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just some of the things that I, I thought about. As you were talking about that ledge, that for some reason popped in my mind. I was like, wow, that was great. I'm, I mostly, I guess you could say, am coming from this, from a Smoky Mountain perspective. So when you were describing that stream, I was I was thinking about some of my favorite pools on Little River up there in the Smokies. And there's one pool in particular, the April Pool. It has almost everything you just described. It has the slow tail out in the back of the pool. It's got some awesome ledges running parallel to, to the flow down the middle of the pool. It's got a really nice head of the pool with a lot of little currents coming together, and then it's got that riffle at the head. And when I'm high sticking, I really am not focusing on the, the slower water, the middle, the back of the pool. When I high stick, I almost always am carrying a, a small indicator in my pocket. I've got a an airlock or a thingamabobber or something. In the Smokies, those fish are so spooky that that middle to back part of the pool, if you get close enough to do a, a Euro nymphing, now, and that's that's not getting deep into it. I mean, if you're doing some of the Euro styles, there's ways to use real subtle indicators and super long leaders and stuff. And I'm not getting into that. I'm getting it. I'm just talking strictly what we'd call high sticking in the Smokies, kind of the traditional method. You can't get that close to where the fish are in that slower water. You know, they'll be long gone if you try to get in there and high stick them. So I'm going to slap that indicator on there. I'm going to fish that whole back of the pool, but I'm not going to do it high sticking. But when I get about the middle to top third of the pool, I start getting into those ledges as soon as I can. I'm with Susan. It's about my favorite thing to do. If I get it, if I get a chance to fish and I'm fishing where I can do it, I'm high sticking, no indicator, just tight line. Um, some people call it Euro nymphing, whatever you want to call it. I'm taking that indicator off and I'm, I'm going to run it down those ledges first. And again, I'm kind of envisioning this one pool, so I don't know where they are in this, this hypothetical pool that we're talking about, but I'm going to run those flies down those ledges because they almost always are going to hold fish. We all know that structure in the form of drop-offs is some of the fishiest water in any kind of trout stream. And those ledges are likely to hold big fish. Big browns like to tuck up under ledges and stuff. So I'm going to run those nymphs down those ledges. Then I'm going to move right up to the head of the pool. And I, I worked the head of the pool pretty hard for that riffle's coming in. And Susan described it perfectly. I can't give a better description than what she did as far as throwing those flies up in that riffle and letting them fall into the pool. I could envision her her rod tip dropping as it came over that lip. And that's <laughs> that's something that's kind of hard to master. It's kind of easy to explain to somebody what you're doing. But when you actually start trying to do it, so many people end up with too much slack, too little slack. I've had some people, they're dragging the fly about two inches under the surface. and like, am I deep enough? No, we got to drop that rod tip, you know. But once you master it and you start catching fish, it looks like magic because you're catching fish and people are like, how'd you know there's a fish there? Well, you know, I you know, I felt him or I saw the leader twitch or whatever it is, you know, and it, and it looks like magic. You're just yanking fish out of water and people can't tell why you're setting the hook. And sometimes, I remember the first time I set the hook and didn't know why I'd set the hook. And that happens sometimes. You set the hook oh, and you're yeah. like, why did I do that? But, you know, something triggered your hook set mechanism subconsciously and there was a fish 
fish there. And when you're fishing that fast riffly water, it's going to happen. You're going to have fish and you just like, where'd that fish come from? He was, he was there. And I don't know why I'd hooked him, but I did. I think that comes from repetition of, oh yeah, of setting that hook in that instance, yeah. seeing that, that fly, that line, yeah. that leader, whatever it is that you happen to be looking at at that time seeing that enough times that it does it consciously you you saw it but you didn't yeah. think about it but your subconscious kicks in and says uh yeah we're going to set the hook yeah. on that because the last 18 times that we set the hook on that yeah we caught a fish that's just getting out there and going and, and yeah basically learning your craft and, and that sort of thing one thing that i think is really important is, again specifically this is more geared towards the smokies but really anywhere you're fishing fast broken water is so often i'll have people i'm fishing with that just kind of gently pull the flies out at the end of the drift or they just kind of lift them out without really thinking about it or they even cast them out give a hook set at the end of the drift every single time when you're high sticking and there's a book by george daniel and i can't remember which of his nymphing books it is but he talks about some of the guys in the professional competitive fly fishing circuit and these guys some of them literally will count two seconds or three seconds and then they'll set the hook and then they'll cast again that's the extent of their drifts and they catch a lot of fish on those hook sets they don't even know they're getting a bite and if you set the hook at the end of every single drift when you're high sticking your catch rate will go up significantly one of the first things that i learned when i was trout fishing and my buddy jasper was his name or is his name jasper said when in doubt set the hook yep you know, if you, if you think something might be happening, set the hook. Better set the you hook. Know, you can always get another drift in there, but set that hook. Yep. And and at the end of the drift is a great time to set the hook. Yeah. I think that's very valuable information. Remembering to do it sometimes is a yeah. thing, but once you get it in your... Once you form that habit, it's yeah. there, you know, you're not going to forget it. Yeah, I got that bullet in my arsenal. Yeah. Boom, I'm going to do it every yeah. time. And I've seen Susan, I've watched you before, you do the same thing. You know, you do the same things over and over and over and over, and your catch rate is good, really good. And one day I watched you, and I was almost to the point where she's going to do this, and she's going to catch a fish, boom, right there. Yep. I mean, just it was almost like clockwork. Muscle memory. <laughs> yeah. 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 Excellent. I always Excellent. tell people, you got to get out there and fish because you got to build that muscle memory. There's no way to get good other than to build the muscle memory. Yeah. That's right. Another reason to go out. Yeah. Good Another excuse to go, go out. out yeah, right. I and mean, you want to be good at it, right? I tell, I tell clients, go home and tell your wife that your guide told you to fish more so that you get better. <laughs> like, do you need a note for that? <laughs> yeah, right. A guide note. That's high sticking. That was good information right there. High sticking with, with nymphs and that sort of thing. Redneck check is something that I picked up from Ollie up in uh, up in North Carolina. It's what he what's that's what they call it up there. And I thought that was a, a pretty cool little term. That's awesome. I Probably like that. Fits me better than anything. But if you're fishing dry flies, uh, and, and David, we're going to start with you, and we're going to end with Susan on this one. If you see a nice hatch, and I've always I've got my theory on it, and this is what I do, and sometimes it works. A lot of times it works. But sometimes it doesn't, and I'll flip to something else. Mm-hmm. Both of these, both of my answers are in these four, and I'll, I'll give the answers, and then y'all can answer. Either pick one of the answers that are provided there, or you can go off on your own and really get in depth of what you might sure. do. But if you see a nice hatch, which is what we all kind of live for. I mean, before we yeah. before we hit record, our conversation was about the hatch, right? Yeah, it was. Right? It was the caddis yeah, hatch that's bugs. going off. Yep. yep. Or the sulfur hatch yep. that's going off. I love to watch the birds eat the sulfurs when mm-hmm. they come off, too. I think that's probably one of the <laughs> coolest things I get <laughs> yeah. to see on the river. But if you see a nice hatch of your favorite bug coming off or dying, so you're, we're talking either hatching or spent, one of the two. Uh, I know we kind of use those terms interchangeably. And you've got an exact pattern of what's going on there. But that exact pattern isn't working. 
which of the following would you try first and why? So would you stay with that same pattern because it's because the pattern is correct, but you'd go bigger in size? Would you stay with that same pattern but go smaller in size? Would you abandon the pattern altogether and throw a kernel of green giant whole kernel corn and try to get the perfect drift? Or would you abandon the pattern altogether and throw a big terrestrial or a streamer pattern and try some shock and awe? Man, that's a tough one without seeing seeing a specific scenario because I've seen so many so many versions of that. But I guess the easy answer from what you have on your list is I'm more likely to downsize the pattern than anything of those answers. Outside of those answers, I'm also pretty likely to downsize my tippet. Mm. I think a lot of time you're getting micro drag, you don't realize it, and if you downsize the tippet, it gives you just a little bit less drag. And sometimes that can make a difference. I think for me though, I want to see if I'm getting any reaction at all. If I'm getting fish that are refusing my fly, then I'm downsizing the fly or I'm downsizing the tippet. One of those two things. If I'm not getting even refusals, which I've experienced sometimes, this is going to sound kind of funny, but I'll put my face down to the water. And the reason I say that, I was on the Hiawassee. This was, oh man, 10 or 15 years ago probably. I was on the Hiawassee and there was this really nice hatch coming off and was catching a ton of fish. And I got down on this pool and the fish were just lined up in this bubble line. I mean, there was probably 100 fish boiling within easy casting range. That doesn't even count farther casts. And none of those fish would look at the fly that I had been just slaying them on just a, you know, a few yards upstream from there. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange. Why, why aren't they taking my fly? So I put my face down to the river and there's a bunch of 14 and 16s floating down the river that I thought I was matching. And when I put my face to the river, there's a bunch of like 20, 22 blueing dollars. And that's what all the fish were eating in that particular hole, every single fish. And so in that case, it turned out to downsize the pattern, but kind of change the pattern a little bit too. I wouldn't have known that without putting my face down to the water. And sometimes you got to kind of get an angle looking out across the water to see the little dark specks. And sometimes you got to just get down, get your eyes six inches from the water and stare at it. I've found a lot of times when I've got a hatch that I'm not getting a response is because it's a complex hatch. There's actually multiple bugs on the water and they're eating something other than what I think they're eating. And you're seeing the big ones fly and your brain... You're just assuming, goes, oh, oh it's got to it be those big old pretty yeah. bugs over there. That's what I'd be eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe they don't taste as good as the little bitty ones. Yeah. That's a neat thought, though, about getting that close to the water and just seeing what's going on. You know, I just love trout streams. And I think just the more you can interact with the stream itself and what lives yeah. in the stream, the, the, the fuller the experience mm-hmm. is, you know. Well, you said going down a size. And I guess I've just always looked at it. If, if it's not working, I go up a size. Because I funny. think, you know, if... If you can eat a crystal or a Big Mac, you're going to, I don't know. I mean, I love crystals, but I love Big Macs too. So I just, uh, I I go with the bigger size. But for me personally, I don't fish a lot of dry flies. I love nymphing. But if I am having trouble with with the hatch, what I'll end up doing is um, putting on a soft tackle. Mm. Because I think nine times out of ten, we might see what we think is coming up as a splashy take. And it's really they're just chasing an emerger coming mm-hmm. up to the surface. So I'll I'll put on and swing a soft tackle. And even if they are taking uh, flies that are coming off, typically they'll take it right in the surface film. Yeah. I, I love to put on a, a dry with a soft tackle, especially mm-hmm. with somebody that's that's maybe new, maybe not getting a really good drift, mm-hmm. because they will. They'll come up and smash the fire out of a soft tackle, even if they are rising for dries. They'll still come up and eat that soft tackle. I think that's important. You want your person to have experience a good day if you can get them to do that. Mm-hmm, sure. That's just one little trick that, 
that helps. And I learned, I think I learned that on the elk with a, with a guy that was just, he was smashing them. Man, he was catching a bunch of fish. His wife happened to be there watching him. I ambled up to him and I, or her and I said, wow, he's really catching a lot of fish. What, what's he using? You know, like I thought she might know. She said, I don't know why she go down there and ask him. <laughs> so I did. And he's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, got to dry here, getting a good drift. And then at the end, I'm getting a lot of them on that soft tackle as mm-hmm. it swings up. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, a lot of times if you do have to go down in size, let's say you had to go down to that tiny little bluing olive, mm-hmm. you know, we, because it seems like the we fish so much, we pretty much have our eyes trained that we can see the tiniest of things yeah. float on the surface. Yeah. But with clients that aren't so much used to being able to do that, mm-hmm. I found if you take something that's... um if you're having to fish something tiny, if you take a really large fly that you can see easily and then tie that tiny fly off as yep. the dropper, yep. you at least have a point of reference of seeing that large fly. Then you can, you know, even the tiniest, size 30, yeah. <laughs> you can see, believe it or not, that dry fly because you've got something that you can you can zero in on. I do that in the Smokies a lot, especially early in the season when you get little small blue quills or something, people can't see an 18 out there by itself and then you put a number 12 quill gordon and put the blue quill behind it and all of a sudden they're catching a bunch of fish on blue quills because they can see where the fly is at that's a great tip i think pointing the pointing the rod at the fly a lot of times helps if you're you know fishing i fish way more out of a boat than anything on flatter water but i tell them it doesn't matter what you're fishing just try to get the rod pointed somewhere in the vicinity where that fly is because sure enough you're going to be like me i'm gonna look around and hear something you know a bird or something and turn around and look at it for only 30 seconds and look back and where's my fly yeah exactly so (laughs) that's a good point that general direction and usually helps helps me out anyway you know something else i think is important to study the fish there's times that you know i've fished a pool in the smokies and the tail of the pool they're eating one bug the middle of the pool they're eating another and the head of the pool they're eating a third bug and sometimes you guys just sit there and watch the fish rise and that's another thing i think we get real anxious and we rush to catch fish where we'll catch more if we just slow down and watch and you just watch for a minute, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, those fish over there are eating those real big yellow bugs, and those fish over there are eating something real small. I can't tell what it is, but it's small, and it's not big and yellow, you know. And all of a sudden you start to realize you got to change flies for each fish sometimes, you know. And that, that's not real often that happens, but you get out to some of the f- fabled water out west where they get the big hatches and stuff. you got to do that. Like just being aware that can happen. Yeah, just know its possibility is important, you know. Like, why is this fish not eating the same yellow stimulator I've caught the last 20 fish on? Well, he's not eating yellow stoneflies, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not eating. He's not eating Big Mac. He is tuned in on the crystals. Yeah, he likes <laughs> his crystals. <laughs> With cheese. <laughs> With cheese, yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked about a lot of things here, like good, I think these are really good answers to, they're not super complex questions. But I think, so already I'm, I'm like generating thoughts of where I'm going to use what, the ideas I'm going to steal, uh, and the ones I'm going to take full credit for. <laughs> <laughs> I invented that one 20 years ago. Right, exactly, exactly. So some of the things I did 20 years ago are coming back around. Yep. And everybody think, wow, they're brand new. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I was doing that 20 years That's ago. That's why a rural coachman so works so well is no one fishes them anymore, but man, they yeah. work good. <laughs> yeah, that used to be my favorite fly. Yeah, for, like, Royal Wolf or Royal yeah. Coachman. Oh, I oh. love those flies. Yeah, I'd buy the, I'd both, I couldn't go in a fly shop without buying one. Yeah, they're even. so pretty. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about streamers here in just a minute. So we're going to try to start wrapping this thing up a little bit. We're going to break this question because really this came from a lot of different people. Kind of asked different streamer questions. thought, well, if I try to bring it all into one question for each of us 
it might be a little difficult. So we're going to break it up. Uh, we're going to ask Susan to talk about patterns. We're going to ask David to talk about fishing structure. And I'm going to follow up on the, at the end with presentations. But the question is, what's the most important thing to remember when fishing streamer patterns for trout? And we're going to focus on tailwaters now. So I think we'll start with Susan and talk about pattern selection. Well, I think the most important thing for me for a pattern is I have to have confidence in it. And so if I've caught a lot of fish on a certain pattern, that's what I'm going to go to. And for me, because most of the streamer fishing I do is going to be on the caney with the little shad that are coming through, then it's going to be white, you know, something that's white. And a lot of times it's going to be a big um, white woolly bugger, and I'll have it trailed with a mop fly, you know, a white mop. I think what happens when I'm when I'm swinging that through or start to strip it, it looks like one fish chasing another minnow, yeah. and that just gets the attention. And yeah. you know, next thing you know, you got a big old brown on the other oh, end. Yeah. And yeah, so to me, most important fish something that you've got some confidence in, because um, you're always going to go back to. You can switch it off, but you're always going to come back to your confidence fly. And just don't be scared to fish a tandem streamer. A lot of people won't fish them in tandem, but I really like to do that. I think the tandem thing is that can be that can be taken to extremes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> We're talking a number of streamers on, a, on a fly rod. One and one last um, tip: you, if you think about fishing a guacamole stick bug, usually they're just little small, you know, um, just small streamers, maybe a size ten or a twelve. I've been tying up some really large guacamole stick bugs in sizes fours and twos. That's awesome. And and boy, do they work. That's <laughs> so awesome. That's something just to think about too. Talking about picking patterns that you have confidence in. I think you always start with the pattern you have confidence in every time because that mm-hmm. that one you if you have confidence in it that means you've probably caught some fish on it. You probably know how to fish it, but if you can get off on the right foot that day your confidence grows even more, and that's a good way to do it. You uh, fish a lot harder in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. More and, thorough. And, yeah, and, and you're, you know, I know that we always say that, you know, it's not about the fish, it's not about the fish. Well, if you go home skunk, it's, you're going to learn something, but you're probably not going to have quite a, quite as a good of a day as what yeah. you could have, even if you've caught yeah. one, two, or 22. Good, good answers there. I've always thought, you know, tandem maybe something, especially here, during a shad kill, which I don't want to say it's over, but it's it, it's on its downward swing a little bit. I keep I have my hope that you know we'll get one that lasts all year, and nobody <laughs> will know about it but us. Yeah, <laughs> we can only hope, right? right. But as it, as you go through the shad kill, sometimes it's good or, or whatever the, whatever it is, and we'll talk about about uh, presentations and that sort of thing in a minute. But color is good, and I think that that white fly to imitate the shad mm-hmm. and then a yellow fly to imitate the little bitty brown trout mm-hmm. that's going after that shad will trigger a big rainbow mm-hmm. sometimes and a big brown sometimes isn't that what you tell people uh, fish any color it's just got to be white or yellow yep, exactly <laughs> that's, my, that's exactly right yeah especially sometimes it's just fish any color just bring white yeah so yeah good information right there and i don't think it all circles you know circles around the shad kill but the pattern selection that you have confidence in is critical yeah. So if I'm going to take that pattern that I have some confidence in and I'm going to fish structure, David, can you kind of walk us through maybe some of the structures and how to fish it and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I guess I'll think about the caney in particular. So on the caney, I'd say our primary structures are woody structure on the banks. You get a lot of downed trees and logs and stumps and those sorts of things. You get a lot of gravel bars, and those almost always transition into some form of a drop-off. And I think one thing that's really important 
with the gravel bars to remember is subtle drop-offs will often hold as good and sometimes as many or more fish than hard drop-offs will. It's real easy to see, a, you know, when the water gets low, oh, there's a big drop-off over there. When I come back on high water, I'm going to fish that. A lot of times those real hard drops don't hold as many fish, and I'm not sure if they're you know, they got stronger flows. It's not as good at holding water or what, but sometimes just the most subtle gravel drop-offs right in the middle of the river will hold just as good a fish, at least here on the Caney. Going back to woody structure and bank structure, I guess, I think there's days that all the fish are on the banks, and then there's some days where it's like there's not a single fish on the bank, and I think a lot of that's when you get rid of those, those big flows. You get two generators or more, and it just really pushes those fish into some pretty specialized spots on the river. With those bankside logs, one thing that... I think so important is looking for those little soft pockets along the banks where the fish can rest a little bit, but they're still looking in that fast water, looking for food coming by, you know, and and if you can dial in where those pockets are and you hit those pockets effectively. One problem I see a lot when I'm guiding somebody on the boat is I'll, I'll point, you know, see that soft spot over there and they'll throw to it and they'll fall five feet short, six feet short, and they won't catch any fish. They won't catch any fish. They won't catch any fish. And then, you know, all of a sudden they'll just get one right in that soft pocket and all of a sudden here comes a hot fish chasing out. And fish are going to move on that big water only if they think that calorie exchange is worth it because they're going to expend a lot of energy to come off those banks on that bigger water. So you've got to put it close enough that they, they really believe that they can kill that streamer. And if you don't, you're probably never going to see the first fish. I think you have to remember in that situation that not only are they going to come out to eat it because they don't know that it's on the end of a end of a tip or yeah. whatever, they have to calculate in there, I'm going to go out there and get it, but I also have to come back. Get back so, to my home, yeah. Yeah, so twice yeah. as much yeah. of the energy there. I, I think they really do the somehow, I don't know how, do those calculations in their head, think that's what I need to do. Okay, I need to go X number of whatever their math is. Yeah out and back so yeah. i think that's that's critical to remember that so that dead on shot into that soft water yeah. a lot of times will it'll a lot of times you'll throw it in there it'll knock the crap out of yeah. it right away yeah. too which is <laughs> yeah i mean everybody loves that because your, your streamer really hasn't had a chance to sink a lot of times yeah. like, i mean it just hits the water and how they get there that fast i will yeah. never <laughs> know i mean if you hit them on the nose that's a gimme but yeah I mean, sometimes you could watch them come from a couple feet away you don't realize what's even going on. Right, but right. You think back and think, yeah, I saw that fish move right before it got smashed. So that's an interesting take on it for yeah. sure. You know, another piece of structure that, you know, is, it sounds kind of vague. I, I would call an inside bend a, a, a piece of structure on high water because those fish are looking for places they can be lazy. Fish are not going to work hard if they don't have to. Some of the biggest fish will be on that outside bend, kind of in those little pockets fighting that heavier current because they're they're out there looking for the big meals coming down that current. A lot of the, what I would call nice fish, I mean, there'll be 20 inch fish on an inside bend that, you know, the 25 incher might be on that outside edge, but maybe. some, some 20 inchers and maybe the big guy is going to be on that inside bend. They'll, they'll stack into that slightly slower water and uh, those gravel bars, that kind of goes back to those, those softer drop-offs. They kind of drop off soft on those inside bends instead of hard. And fish will be on those drop-offs on the inside bin. I think it's important to really work that section hard if you're looking for fish on streamers on the tailwaters. On those soft drop-offs, any drop-off, but the soft ones, When you, whenever I say, hey, throw right there, there's just a little yeah. bit of a drop-off there. Yeah. You know, he may be leaned up against the against his car or drinking a milkshake yeah. for a french fry to come by or yeah. something like that to kind of give somebody a, 
a visual of okay what so they're what up you're to. talking about now that's, you know that's some of my most there. confident water on high water too is those those inside bins with those soft drop-offs they're just they stack full of fish you yeah. know sometimes and then other days you're like where are they at you know well and that, that but, goes back to your yeah. comment of some days they're on the banks and some days yeah. some days they're out in the middle yeah right down the middle. the middle yeah yeah right, right down second base. and then the next week why aren't they down the middle you know yeah, yeah right because that's where i'm gonna go to well yesterday yeah. they were in the middle so i'm gonna start there yeah. and then you go for a mile or so and think well okay did they all leave i know they didn't get up and walk away and you know, go to the bank and boom there they that's are. one thing with structure i think is really important to go through as many structure types as early in your day as you can because there's some days that they'll be on all kinds of structure and those are good days because you're catching fish everywhere and i love those days but when you're streamer fishing a lot of days they're coming off of one type of structure the faster you can run through all your structure types and figure out what kind it is the faster you can dial in where you need to fish i will go back to your comment on one or two generators so so one generator and you were talking specifically about the caney one generator is about 3500 to 4000 cfs two is about normally going to be about eight yeah because they they tend to bump it up a little bit Mm -hmm. so just just to give the listener an idea out there of what type of cfs we're talking about and then the width of the river of course plays into that and and this river is wide in some places and narrow in some places Mm -hmm. so it can it can be the width of a football field and it can be more than the width of a football field i don't think it gets really a couple places is a little you know maybe between the hash marks but some somewhere in that eight thousand CFS is a lot. It's a lot of water. Yeah, and I've been I've been on it in seventeen thousand. Yeah, has a lot there. of water. <laughs> right, and it's not fun. I mean, no. it's not a fun ride. It's a it's scary a, day. It's a boat ride. It's yeah. really all it is. But and I'm not advocating to get out there on that type of water. I'm just saying that just to give somebody an idea. Of, you know, somebody that may be down in Georgia or over in North Carolina listening to this, thinking, well, I wonder what type of water the Caney is. Save them a little bit of research yeah, uh, and just let them know that that's what we're really talking about. Yeah. A lot of gravel bars around Middle Tennessee, more so than like East Tennessee, like yeah. the Clinch and that sort of thing. There's Clinch, bigger you get rocks. those big ledges and stuff instead yeah. of the gravel bars. You get those big pocket ledges yeah. too, like there'll be a ledge all the way around what looks like a bomb crater, so... Just to give the listener a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about there. So I guess it's my turn to talk about presentations. I'm big. I'm, I always end up with a presentation question. I had to be careful reason. not to steal your thunder. It's hard not to talk about presentation <laughs> with structure. I don't have any thunder. <laughs> I think this kind of goes back to what Susan was, was saying. Uh, it goes back to pattern selection. One of the things that I want to look at and, and see is what, what what's swimming in there. What's swimming in, in whatever body you're, of water you're talking about. Are there mm-hmm. sculpins? Hint, there are some sculpins. Yeah. Uh, big shad, hint, there was a shad kill not too long ago. Are they big? If they're big, what are they doing? If they're small, what are they mm-hmm. doing? Because they're not all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I learned that recently as I really sat and watched the shad kill go mm-hmm. off. And I, I was right in the middle of it. And it was a, it was a great thing. Um, I saw some swimming. Yeah. Some, some of the bigger ones were a little bit further under the water than the small ones. Small ones were floating up top. If you look about two feet in, there was these bigger ones down that were about as about as long as your hand. They were dead too, and they were floating, you know, a couple feet under the water, which was, I thought, oh, see any of those big ones on top? And man, the browns were murdering those big ones too. They were like, okay, there's me some, this goes back to what David was talking about, expending that energy. They were, they were thinking, if I'm coming off the bottom, I'm going to stop at the big one. If I miss it, then I'm going to go to the little one. As those shad come through, are they, are they totally alive? Are they almost dead? Are, are they, are they in the middle of dying? Are they just kind of swimming along? Cause I've seen them come through there and be 
virtually unscathed mm -hmm. until a big brown or a yeah. big rainbow gets after them, and then it's kind of over there. So different water levels in the water column, that's kind of what I'm looking for, their top or surface. The lower in the water column, I think that's important. Mm -hmm. As far down as you can see, so if the water's clear, I think that's it. very important to, to be able to see yeah. what's going on right underneath it. Because a lot of times you'll think they're hitting that little shad on top. And I watched this just the other day, not too long ago. I say just the other day like it was last, last week, but it wasn't. It was a little longer than that but it's burned in my memory mm -hmm. the water was clear enough to where i saw that that brown come off the bottom i'm talking specifically about the first one that i noticed it came off the bottom i saw it, i didn't see it off come off the bottom but i saw it come up mm -hmm. it went after the big shad and when it got to it i saw him open his mouth because i saw his, the white come open yeah and it's almost to it and it, he just pushed the shad when the shad mm -hmm. got pushed this was a dead one it pushed all the way to the surface, and he came up and pushed it some more down the river, maybe a foot or two, before he ever got it in his mouth. Mm. So he pushed that dead one from two foot below up, 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 up onto the top, and then mm. had to chase it a little more. It looked like this big, huge bomb going off, but it really wasn't. It was like in segments, like comes off the bottom, mm -hmm. pushes it. He was trying to eat it, but, and I don't know that he missed. You know, I don't, I don't. Obviously. Sounds like stripers pushing it, shad to the does. surface to kill them. You know, it, it does. But interestingly, this is a shad that's already dead. Yeah, I mean, that's he was very intriguing. Floating. That's all he was doing. Yeah. He was done. He was, if he was a buggy, would have been spent. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought that was interesting. So that made me start looking at, at all around me. You know, yeah. now I'm not looking. Usually, I'm looking for those ones on top, yeah. thinking we're going to hit that dry. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were catching them yeah, on, yeah. on the on the floating patterns, but. As I started looking at them, I was like, okay, that's that's one presentation mm -hmm. was that floating drive. But then I said, all right, bring that in here. Let me tie something a little bigger down. Mm -hmm. And we caught some on that too. Mm -hmm. So really goes back to watching. And this even goes back to the earlier conversations in this in this episode. Figure out what they're doing. Because bugs aren't that much different than, than shad or the sculpins. You know, you got to try to watch and try to figure out. You know, what are they doing? And you're not always going to be able to crack that code. I understand that. But observation is, is key. So understanding the characteristics of the prey there uh, of a sculpin is going to be different than a the shad that's half dead or a small brown even that's, you know, trying to find its way in life. They've got kind of a particular swim about them mm -hmm. whenever they get excited too. So those observations are critical. You know, should you be fishing the floating line or sinking line? I love fishing sinking lines because they're so easy. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they do all the work for you. I mean, they load the rod, they unload the rod, they do everything, and you can cast them, you know, a long ways, and you look like a hero and all that. <laughs> but sometimes that's not the answer. We like to think it's the answer because you know people have trained us to think that you know, bang those banks, mm -hmm. blah blah blah. And I've I've preached that before, but now I'm starting to come back around to where this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Twenty years ago, I was fishing a floating line and a, mm -hmm. and a clouser. And just smashing, catching you fish, know, yep. just just having great days, yeah. catching big fish. Yeah. And then I got into the sinking line and zoo cougars. I got on that for a while. Now I'm thinking, for the past actually past several years, I've been saying, what are the what what's that prey doing? Mm -hmm. It starts with what are the fish doing yeah. for me, and then I then I start dialing myself in. It's it's so much fun to watch a fish do something, mm -hmm. but they're doing something for a reason because yeah. they're. They're in survival mode. They're trying to get that, trying to get that Big Mac, or trying to get that crystal, mm -hmm. or leaning up against their cars. You know, drinking a milkshake, waiting for a French fry to come by. Those types of things. I'm trying to put this in a term where, 
where maybe a new person can can kind of get a visual of what's mm -hmm. really going on out there. So your presentation is important. Fast retrieves versus slow retrieves. I've kind of slowed my retrieve down a lot too in the past years. Yeah. And let the let the fly do the the darting and let the fly do the bouncing up and down and all that. Speed I think is critical. Not getting hung on the bottom is critical. So too slow is obviously too slow. Yeah. But too fast is too fast, and neither one of them is really good. It's somewhere in between there, getting that fly in the right spot in the water. Any final thoughts from, on streamers from either one of y'all? Some of my favorite days um, were fishing with you guys on high water, and we've done that for a few years. And, you know, because we don't have the time off except maybe in the winter time, and that's mm -hmm. when the three of us can get in a boat together and actually fish. Mm -hmm. And I'll say I learned two things from you guys. I mean, we all learn from each other, but I know two things specifically. One thing I learned from you, David Knapp, is that as you're bringing your fly into the, um, into the boat, instead of just picking it up and casting it again, I do a big swing around the boat and just let that fly swim mm -hmm. before picking it up and mm -hmm. casting it again. And I've caught so many fish right at the boat just by swinging it right around, just yep. nice and slow. And then the other thing I learned from you, David, Perry, is on my hook set. I remember when we first started fishing those big streamers, I was just setting my hook just like, uh, you know, I was, I was nymph fishing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you told me the first time, don't set it like that, do a strip set. <laughs> and then that made all the difference in the world on my fish catching mm -hmm. <laughs> abilities. But some people don't even know what that, I didn't, you know, about the strip set. And yeah. um, that made all the difference, you know. Just continue as you're stripping, stripping, stripping. You feel that tug, you just continue stripping instead yeah. of lifting that rod tip. That makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. so. I've really started tuning people into that. Don't lift the rod tip, which is impossible to do. Let's go ahead and admit Yeah, that's right tough. That's impossible. Uh, you've trained tough. all your life to set the hook by raising up every fishing show that you've ever watched their bass mm -hmm. fish or anything like that. They're just... The bass fishermen, I mean, they're, they'll turn the boat over practically to set the hook yeah. on a two-pound bass. But I've really started preaching, just keep stripping. You know, whatever that fish makes it, whatever he eats, you're going to feel it. Just try to keep going the same speed because he's going to make his turn or she's going to make her turn. Yeah. And once that happens, you won't have to do anything. Yeah. And the, I taught, I taught a, a, a young man now, I call him a kid because I'm a little older, but I taught him to streamer fish. He never fly fished before. Uh, before he fished with me last year, and then he came back this year, and we went fishing for white bass. So this year we're fishing streamers on sinking lines, and he he was all you know freaked out about it at first. And I told him just you know just let the rod. I mean it's a it's a six hundred dollar rod. Make it work. Yeah. You know, don't <laughs> try to overpower it because you paid a lot of money for it. Mm -hmm. So make it do what it's supposed to do. So once we got into that, then I said just you know when you feel something on there. Resist the urge to set the hook. Just keep on stripping. And man, whenever he got that down, whenever he could just keep himself stripping, mm -hmm. it was like it was like a light bulb came on. <laughs> and then I said at the end of the trip, now when we nip fish again, all that goes out the window. Yeah, right. right. You're gonna have to switch back over. <laughs> That's yeah. right. You know, but if you if you go to salt water, that technique still works. Set, yeah. yeah. And I mean salt water guys are like, ah, quit that trout set. Yeah. You know, well, hey, hey dude. You know what? Seventy percent of your business is a bunch of trout trout guys. They're going to yeah, trout, that's so true. <laughs> take a dose of shut the heck up, right? So you know, but but trying to get that down, I think practice is one thing that helps with that. Yeah. Again, 
another reason to go fish. That's why I like spring. You got those skipjack in the river. Yes. You can go warm up your strip set on skipjack and oh. then get serious with the trout. Yes. So yes. much fun. I, I, I'm like, skipjacker in the river? Yeah. Really? <laughs> you know, and people are like, skipjack, what is that? Oh, it's the best thing You guys ever. caught a real big one the other yeah. week. A real big one. That's the biggest I've seen on the Caney by far. Yeah, it was big. It was uh, it was a hoss. That's awesome. And I knew that's what it was. I Tennessee tarpon. Yeah, yeah, you can tell by the way the rod tip starts bouncing yeah. and going crazy because <laughs> it's a skipjack. But, boy, it looks like a big one. Yep. It was a good one. I could I could catch those all day. And I've caught them on dries up there yeah. on, on floating streamers, yep. too, which is even more fun. You know, mm-hmm. but Don't go away if you're out there listening. That was like round one of wisdom of the guide. So if you have any questions that you want to ask for round two, I don't know who I'm going to get to do this. You two are always welcome back, and you may be a guest guide into a guide panel uh, from time to time. So, uh, again, it always goes back to our, our schedules, and I understand that. And I appreciate, Susan, first of all, thank you for for letting us come out here. Uh, and David, thank you for for both of you for working all day and then coming in here and and uh, and talking fishing if you've talked it all day like i said i took the day off i didn't do anything uh, <laughs> which was fantastic thanks susan thrasher you're the owner of southern brookies so i, I think we'd be remiss to, to get out of here without asking where can the audience find you and what's the best way to contact you uh well i have a website southernbrookies.com and then also on Instagram and Facebook, it's um, at Southern Brookies. And so all my information is on there, so in the profile. Okay. So either a text message or an email, and I'll get right back with you. I love me some text messages. And David, owner of the Trout Zone Anglers, where can they find you? You can find me on the internet at troutzoneanglers.com. And uh, there's contact information on there for email and phone, whatever way you want to reach me. And, of course, Instagram and Facebook, you can look up Trout Zone Anglers in both of those places as well. I just go ahead and say we're all on all that stuff. Yep. Facebook, Twitter. You know, I was talking to somebody just the other day how it's funny. People don't take you seriously if you're not on social media. And there's times I'm like, I just want to quit doing it. It's such a hassle to keep up with. But, you know, there's all these people. I've had people book trips off social media, you know. So they see I. you with a big fish, and they're like, oh, i got to fish with that person, you know. I, just, I, I talk to people all the time on the river. They're like, oh, have you fished with Susan? Because we'll go by your house. And I'm like, oh, that's Susan's house, you know. And and they're like, have you talked fished with her? She looks awesome. She always has nice fish pictures. I'm like, yeah, you better fish with her sometimes yeah. so you can hold some of those fish. <laughs> it's funny because I hear the same, same about you. But, you know, one of the things that hit me the other day um, when I floated by somebody, they said that they enjoyed seeing the pictures that we posted because it gave them hope. That's cool. Know, that they That's were, cool. That there are fish out yeah. there. So it's not like... They were feeling like deflated or, oh, man, I wish I had caught that. It was more like, I can because yeah. I know they're out here. So. That's awesome. I don't really think we're doing anything different, anything special. I think maybe we're, we're tuned in sometimes, not every day. Yeah. Not every minute of every day. Sure. Uh, I have some, my skunk days. <laughs> I think everybody has those days where you're like, oh, man, I didn't catch hardly anything today. Mm-hmm. And, and people still seem to be, I've had people not catch much at all and come back and have a fantastic day, you know, like yeah. something that we – all hope for that that day where you get up in the morning like wow i hope this is going to be a really good day and it would mirror that hope yeah so i mean everybody's got everybody's got their days where it's just tougher that's just all all there's i'll tell you one thing that and i'm I'm, if you if you hung around i want to say this it's interesting that we can get together in a room and we text quite a bit Mm -hmm. um back and forth whenever that's really that's about the only way that we can get get answers to anything that we have yeah <laughs> so uh, busy between, yeah getting our but, schedules matched up it's fun it's just tough but yeah 
but I think it's, and I'm, I'm very proud and glad to be a part of it because we get along so well. And for the most part in East, in Middle Tennessee, most of the guides mm-hmm. get along well together. Yeah, try to work together. Yeah. Whereas I go out west or I go down to Louisiana oh, or Florida, and, man, they <laughs> yeah, hate each other's guts. Yeah. I mean, they're cussing each other and ranting and raving, and and I'm just I'm just thinking. I'm so glad that I'm not a part of this. Yeah, yeah. it's not like that in Middle Tennessee. It no. really isn't. And we don't want any part of that either. So mm-hmm. if you come, if you're thinking that you're going to come in here and be that way, you know, we it's welcome a family. You. <laughs> Rethink that. It really is a it family. Is kind yeah, it of a is. family. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I better say where I am. So I'm the owner, David Perry, owner of Southeastern Fly. I guess uh, you can find me at southeasternfly.com. This this uh, this podcast has been great because I think. Uh, it's a good place for somebody to come and, and chill a little bit, learn mm-hmm. something. This this particular episode, I hope you learned something. These other the other episodes, if you listen real close, there's a whole bunch of tips sprinkled in there. But yeah. you got to pay attention because I don't ask really people to to go in there and tell me every tip. It's not like this episode, but I do ask them to give the the listener something besides their story. Mm-hmm. And man, some of the tips I get out of there, I'm like, oh, that's a good one right there. That's mm-hmm. a nugget. I mean, there's a lot of nuggets sprinkled throughout there yeah. uh, about a good way to fish here and there. And, and the people are from all over the Southeast. So you kind of get a blend of, of good and, and, and useful information. Again, this is round one of, of uh, wisdom of the guides. I think John, I want to thank John Jordan. Uh, for giving me the idea and and for for saying yeah go ahead and use it let it let it live on a little bit hopefully we can continue to do these rounds and uh and uh hopefully hopefully somebody got something out of this so you just listen to wisdom of the guys round one and thanks for joining us from southeastern fly the angler's influence thanks everybody thanks david thanks david